I want to talk tonight about this force of delusion in the mind. There are many ways in which we can get a sense of the pervasive power of delusion as it strikes us. A little while ago, I had a friend who was suddenly very ill. He'd been quite healthy in general, but he got very sick and almost died. One day in Barry, he called me and left a message in my answering machine saying he'd like to speak to me. But when I got home and I went to call him back, my phone rang and it happened to be a mutual friend. So I said to her, um, you know, I can't really stay on the phone right now because I have to call this other person. And the woman on the other end said to me, well, do you know he almost died? And I said, yeah, I do. And, you know, I, I think I should call him. So I hung up and then the phone rang again. And strangely enough, it was another mutual friend. And I said, well, you know, I can't really talk to you right now because I have to call this other person. She said, well, do you know he almost died? <laughs> and I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do know he almost died. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think I should call him. So when I finally got my friend on the phone, I told him this story and I said, I think I'm now going to expressly refer to you as he who almost died. <laughs> and he said to me, well, that's better than he who almost lived. I said, well, how do you mean that? Do you mean that in the sense of you might have died, but at the last minute you survived? He replied by saying, no, I actually mean that more in the sense of how we can go through an entire lifetime almost living and then come to the end and realize that, in fact, is what we've done. I often think of that in terms of this quality of delusion where we're just lost. We're out of touch. We're disconnected. We don't know, actually, that we're alive. We're almost alive. The word in Pali is moha, and it means to be stupefied, <laughs> to walk around in a stupor, to be out of touch. We don't know in some way who we are. We don't know in some way where we are. I have another fairly recent example of the state of delusion, or just that feeling tone of what delusion is happened about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, when I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was walking with a friend in this very large cemetery called Mount Auburn Cemetery. We'd done a workshop together that day, so we began walking just at dusk. We're walking and walking, talking about all kinds of things, when suddenly we realized we were absolutely, completely lost. And it got darker and darker, and we were just wandering around saying things to each other like, how long ago did we pass the Carter Mausoleum? And, <laughs> you know, which way were we going? Were we going right or left? Or where are we? And we just wandered and wandered and wandered without a clue. And you can imagine how alike tombstones look <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> Until finally, really hours later, we found our way to the front gate, which was locked. <laughs> we had to wait quite some time before we could, we could get out. 
Delusion very much has that sense of apprehension, of uncertainty, of confusion. Where am I? What will happen if I turn left? Will that be wrong? What will happen if I turn right? Did I do this already? Where am I? Where do I belong? Who am I? It also has an aspect of simply not knowing what we're feeling. There was a study done, a psychological study, which I found quite interesting, where people were wired up in the ways that people can be to measure temperature and blood pressure, pulse, all kinds of things. And what this study showed that people can sometimes be seething with reaction as measured by all of their physiological responses, but even then can be oblivious to their emotions. They may not be at all aware of experiencing anger or anxiety, emotions that might be somewhat difficult to face, even though their hearts are racing and their blood pressure is climbing and they're sweating. By all objective measures, something is going on with them, but they don't feel it. Their self-awareness isn't extending to those feelings. The research revealed that about one person in six seems to show this pattern, which is remarkable. And perhaps related to this is the question of empathy and ability to attune emotionally and to feel into what someone else is feeling. If we can't open to the range of feelings within ourselves, including the painful ones, we can't sense what someone else might be feeling in any particular situation. So in some way, if we can't open to our own suffering, we can't open to the suffering of others. This is significant because in some way empathy is the root of caring. We know how it feels to suffer. We know how it feels to hurt, to be in a state of loss, of grief, of pain. And because of that knowledge, we don't want to hurt anybody else. We don't want to cause them pain. If we know that somebody will suffer in some way if we do or say something, and we have this empathic knowledge, we're certainly less inclined to do that thing. It's a kind of morality that's very simple and natural. It's very heartfelt, which is the best kind. It's gentle and unaffected, unforced, uncontrived. Without this kind of empathic bridge, then morality can be just like a set of rules that we follow or we rebel against or whatever we might do, but it's not the natural expression of the heart. The natural expression of the heart is the uncontrived reluctance to cause pain, <coughs> because we know what that feels like. And so delusion can be a very significant state when we're cut off from our own feelings. We don't know where we are. We don't know what we're feeling. 
This is a quotation from a poem by Pablo Neruda, who said, the poem is called, Flies Enter a Closed Mouth. And he says, <laughs> when did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their order? Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign? What are the tortoise's thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die? And why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. In some ways, delusion is just that. It's the state of not realizing what it is that we actually know, not realizing what it is that we don't know, and not knowing how to ask the right questions, not having the spark or the energy to investigate, to question, to look deeply at our lives. As you know, there are three main or root defilements or torments of the mind, and that is grasping, aversion, and delusion. In some ways, when I think about these three states, I think of them almost as qualities of misplaced faith or misplaced trust. It's almost as though when we're lost in these states, we offer our trust to the wrong things and in the wrong ways. The word in Pali that's usually translated as faith or trust, sada, means to place your heart upon, to give your heart over to something. And in greed or in grasping, we seem to place our hearts upon the possibility of some lasting satisfaction of desire, that somehow we will obtain an object or an experience or a person or something that will actually satisfy us forever. That's what we place our faith on, our hope on, our trust on. And when we're lost in aversion, it's like we place our hearts upon the ability to separate from what's happening, to somehow declare it untrue, to push it away, to make it go away. It seems that when we're lost in anger or aversion, we're placing our faith upon the ability to have control over things, to keep unpleasant experiences from happening, to keep unpleasant people away, to be able to cut it all off. And in delusion, we place our hearts upon not noticing, being in that stupor, being in a fog, not seeing the truth of things. Somehow we feel protected by being out of touch, being cut off, being lost, not seeing the impermanence of everything, not seeing the unsatisfactoriness of things, not seeing the empty, empty nature of things. So when we're lost in delusion, it's like we're placing our faith or placing our trust on somehow muddling through life on almost living. Delusion means failing to see things as they are. We're stupefied. 
When it's strong in the mind, we experience it as bewilderment, as confusion, as dullness, as helplessness. We are cut off from the essential nature of how things are. Because of that sort of wandering, unclear about who we are and where we are, there's often a sense of uncertainty, of worry, of anxiety that's connected to delusion. It makes us quite uneasy in some way. When we're lost in delusion, it's almost as though life <laughs> is fragmented into all of these pieces and we can't quite get how it fits together. We can't quite get the relatedness of things, the connection between things. And interestingly, in the teachings, it's said that because of that uneasiness, that uncertainty, that confusion, we often will then cling to rigid views. This is the mind of dogmatism or fanaticism or conceit. It's like we're looking very hard in our lives for security someplace. And if we're deluded, if we're confused, if we're stupefied, and we're okay with that feeling, we remain deluded. But if we're not quite so at ease with being confused, then we have to find something to hold on to, something somewhere to hold on to. <coughs> so the examples given of being out in a storm, like in the wilderness, being out in this raging storm, and if we can find anything that will seem to promise us some shelter, we will cling very tenaciously to that. We'll cling rigidly to that and we'll refuse to relinquish it. Delusion has that characteristic of just not knowing what's going on. And so we're for lost, we're afraid. It functions to conceal the true nature of things, so we're confused, and it manifests as darkness. You perhaps have all had the experience of driving down a road someplace and suddenly wondering, where am I? Did I make that turn already? Am I in California? <laughs> what is it? That's delusion. <laughs> it's a moment of utter confusion. It's taught that delusion is, in its role as ignorance, in its face of ignorance, it's the root of all unwholesome states of mind. If we look deep inside of greed or desire, we'll see delusion. If we look deep inside anger, we'll see delusion. They're always linked or grounded in delusion. When we're full of greed, of desire, we are placing our hearts upon the faint hope that we will be able to acquire and possess and hold on to and keep something. That is delusion. Because how many times have we held on to something only to see it change? If holding on and grasping and trying to keep and trying to possess anything would work, it would be quite fine as a mental state. But it's completely defiant of how things actually are. We've all held on many, many times. We've tried to hold on, only to watch everything change. But at the next opportunity, if we are lost, 
we try once more. And when we're filled with anger, we have that hope. We want to place our hearts, hearts upon the idea that somehow we really can keep it from happening. We can push away that unpleasant whatever, that terrible, painful thing, and we can assume control. That's delusion as well. As we mentioned before, in the teachings, there are three main character types that are talked about. And that is the greedy or grasping, or some greedy or grasping people sometimes call it the sensuous type of person. (laughs) (laughs) And the angry or aversive type of person, and the deluded type of person. While we all clearly have these three characteristics as strong conditioning, usually all three in different strains, sometimes you can feel that you are strongly one or the other. Our conditioning can be in such a way that one type tends to predominate more than another. And so we place our hearts upon different things more than other things. In the Buddhist psychological system of personality types, I am a classically deluded type. (laughs) Classically. And I have many ways of proving that. (laughs) I'll tell you one story because it's such a quintessential manifestation of delusion. This was uh, not this past three-month course, but the one before, which I was teaching in Barry. And I live next door to the meditation center. So I left my house one morning to go over to the meditation center to do interviews. And I noticed as I walked past my driveway that my car was gone. (laughs) Now, for one thing, deluded types don't do very well in the morning. So (laughs) I walked by it, and I thought, it's gone. (laughs) Somewhat confusedly perplexed, I began thinking, well, the night before, I'd had to go into Cambridge to give a talk. And when I got home, there was almost no gas left in the car. So that morning I started thinking, well, maybe somebody noticed that. And they they went and took the car and they put some gas in it. Then I walked through the forest into the staff dining room at IMS. And the first person that I saw was the person who would have been the logical person to take the car to put gas in it, if anybody had. So I looked at him and I said, did you take my car? And he said, no, I didn't take your car. And I said, really? You didn't take my car? And, and he said, no. And I said, well, it's gone. And then he said, are you sure? <laughs> now, that's the killer moment. <laughs> because one of the characteristics of delusion is a tremendous amount of self-doubt. He said... He said, are you sure? And I thought a moment and I said, I think it's gone. (laughs) I said, a car's a really big thing. It's like you walk walk by a car and if it's gone, you know, it's gone. So then he said to me, I'm going to go check. (laughs) 
just then, one of the other teachers came into the staff dining room who happens to be an angry type, and she overheard this exchange. And she said to me, you know, you probably just lent the car to somebody and you forgot who. <laughs> and I thought, oh, of course, I must have lent the car to somebody. <laughs> And then I thought, who did I lend it to? <laughs> I don't understand. I just couldn't think of anybody. So then, it was time to go to work, and I was upstairs doing interviews all morning long, and every once in a while I'd think, who did I lend the car to? <laughs> I just couldn't think. And then I went down to lunch many hours later, and another one of the teachers walked in, and I said to her, did you take my car? <laughs> and she said no. And just then Joseph walked by and he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. <laughs> and I said, what happened to my car? <laughs> and he explained that somebody had called him very early in the morning and needed a car and uh, through some prior conversation had thought she could take my car. And since no other car was available, he said that that was okay. And he hadn't had time to write me a note. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, my car. But that is what it's like to be a deluded type. <laughs> that is what it's like to be lost in delusion, even if you're not particularly a deluded type. We lose confidence in our own perception, and then there's this spiraling confusion. Who did I lend my car to? <laughs> Along with feelings of bewilderment and uncertainty. As we know, just from life, in response to any particular situation, some people will just seem to look on the bright side of things. They just look for things to work out okay. And other people will seem to just naturally focus on what's wrong. And others will feel quite confused. And those three tendencies conform to those three types. If one has a strong tendency toward greed or grasping, or even if you're not a greedy type, if there is a strong mood or mind state of greed or grasping, we want everything to work out just fine. If you know anybody like that and you've ever been in a meeting with them, and some issue is presented, and they say, it'll all work out. <laughs> and you think, how will it all work out? <laughs> and they say, don't worry, it'll all work out. <laughs> because when the mind is filled with greed, we have a certain disinclination to see problems and difficulties and change. We want everything to just work out so we can enjoy some happiness. And if you know somebody who in a meeting will tend to seize on a problem or will point out problems that nobody else is seeing, but not necessarily with solutions to the problems. They just manage to point out all of the difficulties in a certain situation. That corresponds to the angry type or the mind filled with anger, which tends to probe and look for faults and look for difficulties. And somebody who easily gets confused about what they're feeling or perceiving. Somewhat dependent on the view of others is a deluded type. And again, we all have all three. And it's 
important to understand how all three can function in the mind, how they can take over, how we can get lost. In some ways, each of those types or each of those tendencies of the mind has a hidden jewel within it, some positive aspect. And if we're mindful enough, then these factors of mind can be transmuted. It's possible to experience the positive side of each of them. The tendency toward greed, for example, toward wanting, having, also indicates a willingness to draw near to things, to people, to experience life fully, to surrender to experience without holding back, withdrawing. So it's said that the purified manifestation of greed is a kind of faith or trust, that openness. It allows us to draw near to experience, to face life more fully, to surrender. And we can do that without the stickiness and the kind of obscuring intoxication of greed. Now, angry types may fixate on what's wrong in a situation, but this also contains an aspect of being ready and willing to look perhaps deeper than other people are, being willing to honestly recognize what might be unpleasant or unwholesome. And because of that kind of cutting through ability of anger, it's said that it transmutes to wisdom, because wisdom also demands that we go beyond a superficial level of perception, that we be able and willing to incorporate unpleasantness that might be somewhat hidden from view. Wisdom demands that we understand all elements of life, not just what looks nice. But wisdom can function in that cutting through, penetrating kind of way without the painful and the isolating effects of anger. And a deluded type feels disconnected from whatever's happening in a situation and may not know quite how to respond. But with increasing mindfulness, that tendency can be transformed into one of very great equanimity. Rather than being insensitive to what's happening, the serenity of their response can come from being more fully connected to what's happening because of the clarity of mindfulness. We all go through times, whatever type we might feel ourselves to be, if any, we all go through times of strong delusion with the restlessness and the perplexity, the unsettledness of it. Like we don't belong in our own bodies, we don't belong in our own minds, in our own experience, like we're inhabiting something strange. It's very difficult to open to many things, many parts of life. It's difficult to open to suffering, to see suffering directly. So we tend to look the other way. We'd rather get lost in delusion and simply not see. It can be hard sometimes to experience joy as well, to open fully to joy, to rapture, to happiness. And so we'd rather disconnect. We'd rather be numb. We'd rather be apart. 
are lost in delusion. Because of delusion, we miss a lot. We feel lost in a cloud and we're not really connected to what's happening. In my very early practice, when I was first practicing this particular technique of meditation, and I was told to try to make a mental note of whatever was happening all day long, whatever the predominant experience was, I was living in India in this compound, and I found myself just walking around this place, kind of saying to myself, waiting, 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 (laughs) until finally I said to myself, what are you waiting for? (laughs) I realized that I was waiting for something exciting enough to happen or important enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so that I could note it. (laughs) I realized that I was living my life almost like a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was waiting for life to happen. This is the state of delusion, of being disconnected. Because the truth is everywhere. The truth of impermanence is to be found everywhere, or unsatisfactoriness, or emptiness. We need simply pay attention. We need to wake up. So delusion is sometimes an escape, Sometimes it's the root of other unwholesome responses or unskillful, painful responses. It's a way of being out of touch, being lost. It's a way of not trusting ourselves, not trusting who we are, waiting for someone else to say, oh, that was very pleasant, wasn't it? (laughs) In order to be able to say, oh, yeah, that was very pleasant. Although I am told that deluded types are really the best kinds of people to travel with because um, (laughs) for example, (laughs) I went with another friend who's not here uh, uh, to Asia one year and we traveled through China and Tibet and then Nepal and Burma and we would check into a hotel, and she, who is also a self-confessed, greedy type, would say to me, would you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, no, I don't mind. And then maybe 20 minutes later, I'd say, why did you want that bed over there? (laughs) And she'd say, well, it's closer to light switch, and the mosquito net doesn't have a hole, and the mattress looks firmer, and you know. (laughs) She would list about 18 things she had seen immediately upon walking into the room. I just saw nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's also taught, and I've always found this interesting, that not only because of delusion do we miss a lot, and not only do we lose confidence in our own perceptions of things, but we also embrace our suffering more wholeheartedly. Not embrace in a good sense, but we get lost in or involved in our suffering wholeheartedly when we're lost in a delusion. In delusion, We latch on to our pain and suffering. Something that's quite interesting in the Buddhist teaching is the idea that if we do something hurtful, if we do something harmful, something that's motivated by grasping or hatred, something like that. And we do it not knowing that it's unskillful. 
not knowing that it's going to cause harm or suffering, then the karma or the consequence of that action is actually worse than if we were to do that action knowing that it's harmful, knowing that it's unskillful. And this is different, you know, it's quite different from the kind of conditioning many of us have, which says something like, well, you knew better than to do that, and because you knew better, and precisely because you knew better than to do that, and you did it anyway, then that makes it ten times worse. It's the exact opposite of that. And in a way, it's a very pragmatic teaching about how the mind works. That is to say, if we do something and we don't understand that it will harm us or it will harm somebody else, if we're that out of touch, either with our own feelings or the feelings of others, then we'll really abandon ourselves into that action. We'll pour ourselves into that action. There's no pulling back from it. It's like the full force of the power of our minds is going into that action along with grasping or along with anger. And ignorance as well as planting a seed that will be consequential in some way. So when we reap the fruit of that action, we reap the fruit of that intensity, that abandonment, that wholehearted greed or wholehearted anger, and the ignorance as well. Whereas if we want to do something and we know that it really will be hurtful or will cause harm, usually what we experience is that moment of wanting to do it and that moment of pulling back and saying, I, I won't do it, it'll really cause suffering. And then that moment of wanting to do it and that moment of pulling back and then finally perhaps there's that moment of wanting to do it and we go ahead and do it. But in those cases, it's like those moments of sensitivity, those moments, you could say, of conscience or wholeness or connection, really feeling the connection of ourselves to others and our actions to consequences. Those moments aren't lost either. It's like we reap the fruit of those moments of going forward and getting lost and getting carried away, but we also reap the fruit of all those moments of pulling back and being more balanced, more connected. And so it's because of delusion that we just throw ourselves into actions that create more suffering. We get lost in it. That's one of the, the great difficulties with delusion. Another difficulty is that as we are lost, as we are frightened, as we are uncertain because we're so disconnected, and we do cling to views and opinions in order to feel a little bit safer. We get lost in the delusion of our view being the only right view. We forget what is sometimes called in the Buddhist teaching karmic vision. We feel so disconnected that we'll cling to anything. And our view becomes the only view, whether we got it from our own experience or we borrowed it from someone else's comment. We cling very strongly and we forget that there are so many ways of perceiving and interpreting the very same event, depending upon all of the 
conditions that each person is bringing with them into that same experience. I often think about that. You know, if somebody got up in this room and did something, there might be 148 different reactions. You know, some of us would feel frightened and others amused, and there would be so many different ways of responding to this very same thing. There's not one solid, unyielding, permanent, inevitable, necessary reality in that sense. <coughs> this is from Kala Rinpoche, who said, if a hundred people sleep and dream, each of them will experience the different world in their dream. Everyone's dream might be said to be true, but it would be meaningless to ascertain that only one person's dream was the true world and all others were fallacies. There's truth for each perceiver according to the karmic patterns conditioning their perceptions. When we're lost in delusion, we forget the immense relativity of this world and of people's reactions, interpretations, conditioning. We begin to feel as we see things is the only way it can ever be seen. And yet the world of conditionality, of fabrication, of concept, of display is, is immense, it's rich, it's varied. When we get lost in a particular view, our world becomes very small. And what happens is that when we cling to our particular views, we find that more and more legends are getting woven to somehow support the way we see things as the only way. There's an example that I like a lot, which has to do with a particular wing of our center in Barry, uh, and the wing is called the Catskills. Many of you have sat there, I know, and some of you may have wondered. The Catskills are a chain of mountains in uh, New York State where Joseph happened to have grown up. And so the day when we first went to look at the building to try to decide whether to buy it, in effect, we were given a tour, we were wandering around, and we got to this particular wing of the building, and Joseph made a joke. He said, oh, this looks like a motel in the Catskills. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and then um, the board of directors formed the organization, and we bought the place, and we moved in a few months later, and it's, it's quite large. So we had somebody going around and drawing a map. He you know, placed all the bathrooms and the closets and this and that. And then he put the map on the bulletin board. And I went downstairs one day, and there was the map. And there it said, under those <coughs> wings, Catskills. And I thought, oh, that's really funny. <laughs> Joseph made a joke. This won't last. <laughs> 20 years later, <laughs> it's still called the Catskills. Now, a few years ago, a friend of mine came to sit, and when people come for the first time, since the place is so large, they're given a tour. And he was going about on his tour when they got to that wing, and then he asked his person, the, the person leading the tour, why is this wing called the Catskills? And the person responded by saying, 
Oh, well, that's the wing of the building that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> Which, in fact, it does not. It lies furthest from the Catskill Mountains. But nonetheless. And then at the end of his retreat, my friend said to me, that was interesting. And I looked at him and I said, why in the world would we have named a wing of the building <laughs> because of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains? <laughs> It was totally meaningless. It was a joke that happened 20 years ago. For a while, one of my goals in life was to actually rename that wing. <laughs> It'll never happen. But it's amazing to see how this entire legend has grown up around the naming of that wing. We cling to something and our world becomes very small. This is what's called fixation. We are lost within a certain view and forget the great relativity of things, how each of us in some way constructs a world out of our desires and hopes and fears and memories and ideas. We need to be able to break open the force of delusion because it limits us, it makes our world small, we remain disconnected, we remain dependent on others, and we don't know who we are. One of the major consequences of delusion is a certain unawareness of context, because as our minds get really small and we hold on to something in order to get a sense of where we are, we lose sight of a bigger context. And the Buddhist teaching, that sense of context, which is actually essential for full mindfulness, full and broad mindfulness, is called clear comprehension. So for example, one of the Buddha's recommendations in terms of speech is to say that which is true and that which is useful. To say that which is true doesn't necessarily mean that we should go around blurting out to everybody exactly what we think of them. But to say that which is useful as well, to be able to discern what, to the best of our ability to judge, is useful, we have to be very sensitive. We have to be quite aware of context. We need a sense of clear comprehension. If we have to say something to somebody that feels like it might be difficult to hear, maybe it's best not to shout it out across a crowded room. Maybe we take them aside. Maybe we say it in a certain way. We look carefully. We look in context. We try to be able to see as completely as we can, as distinctly as we can, to know many aspects of what's going on and to know it for ourselves. All of that's clear comprehension. It's not comprehension in an intellectual sense, but to know deeply for ourselves, as completely as we can, we have to look at things as they are arising, in the reality that's being created in this moment, with all of that tenderness and openness and spaciousness, to see something as clearly as we can. Because how we look at our lives 
is really everything. When we're lost in delusion, it functions almost like a kind of narcotic so that vital parts of our lives are missing. They're just cut off. They're invisible to us. It's the failure to see things as they actually are. In order to have clear comprehension, we need to be able to open. We need to be able to reconnect, to see as clearly as possible. We can see delusion a lot in a strong social manifestation. It's like all of the buried secrets in a family or in society, like the arguments that are never mentioned or the conflict or fears that are never acknowledged. When the facts are too totally obvious to ignore, then they can be altered to hide their meaning. Delusion alters them so that the truth is hidden by silence and by denial and by covering over. Those are all aspects of delusion as well. The collusion or the denial is maintained by directing attention away from the truth, by directing attention away from the reality of things, or by distorting and repackaging the meaning so much that it appears to us in a more acceptable format. So we get all of the incredible euphemisms of our world, like the Golden Year Social Club, or the comment about somebody um, in a family saying, well, they just fly off the handle a lot, or something like that. You think, what's going on in a family? It's a self-deception, and it's also a shared illusion. There are many times when a group like a family may implicitly or explicitly demand of its members that they sacrifice the truth as they see it to maintain a certain illusion, both within ourselves and external to ourselves. Delusion can be strengthened by our need to preserve an identity, either a self-identity or a group identity. So if the cost of belonging to the group is not seeing certain things, we don't see them anymore in order to continue to belong. We put that seeing aside or we deny it. Whatever threatens our identity, our image, our legend brings anxiety. To avoid anxiety, we close off or we push away those elements that seem unacceptable. And so we close off critical portions of our own awareness. The word in Pali that's usually translated as anxiety actually means split. It means to be split from our experience. When our experience appears as alien, as other, as coming from without and threatening us, that's anxiety, to be separate. And we can, in a conditioned way, try to dispel the anxiety to avoid it by separating even further. But as we close off more and more and more and more, there are fewer things that we can actually feel. There are fewer things we allow ourselves to see or feel. And our world becomes very small, vacuous and empty. 
we can be quite unaware and split off from our inner life. We can be quite unaware and split off from our environment as well. So as we peel away the layers of delusion, we find ourselves, we find the courage to speak, to name things as we see them. The strength in articulating, in taking a risk, in making a commitment, in knowing what we feel, in sensing what others feel, in having clarity, having a sense of dedication. It's said that the proximate cause or the nearest arising condition of non-delusion is wise attention. It's actually training the mind to pay attention. Non-delusion can see things according to how they actually are. It's not a question of this being acceptable and that not. This being denied and that slightly open to. It's a question of seeing things as they are arising, according to their immediate nature, whatever that might be, and according to their more ultimate nature, as being transitory, as being transparent, and so on. Manifestation of non-delusion is non-bewilderment. So it's like having a guide. It's like having a light to illuminate our way. It's simply paying attention with the power of silence, with the power of non-reactivity that melts our rigidly held ideas. It melts what we think we know, what we hold on to out of fear, and it melts our fear of not really knowing. It allows us to discover as opposed to cling. Wise attention is clear comprehension. We get quiet so that we can feel, we can sense, we can see things in context. We let the mind settle so that we can know our own experience and be sensitive to the experience of others. We may have all of the same experiences without exception, but we can be aware, we can be mindful. I may not always be able to find my car, but I can always be mindful when I remember. Mindfulness is like the alchemical agent which will transmute all of these qualities. There's an aspect of delusion which is very calm. It's very equanimous. It's very non-reactive. And that is like the jewel that is hidden within it. When we are aware, when we're mindful, rather than being lost in that cloud, then we can bring forth that quality of equanimity in a whole variety of changing circumstances, but actually alive, fully connected in those times. Wise attention means, as mindfulness, that 
we experience what's happening without a hidden agenda. We're not trying to manipulate it. We're not trying to make things flow in a certain way. We're simply trying to approach completely what is happening with a silence of mind that actually can be with, can connect, can learn from, can explore. To be able to approach no matter what is happening, pleasant or painful or neutral, with the willingness to experience it, to know it, to recognize it for what it is. That's the actual practice. I think I'll close with a poem from Ryokan, <coughs> rather than tell you more delusion stories. She <laughs> 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 says, if you, sp- <coughs> if you speak delusion, everything becomes delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Followers of Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own hearts. So let's sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on January 23, 1997. It is an offering of